Welcome to the Almost 30 Podcast. I'm Lindsay. And I'm Krista. And we're your hosts, guides, and friends on this path. Almost 30 is not about your age. It's about the feeling. All of us are almost something, seeking community and resources to support the rumblings of transformation within us. Our conversations are deep dives, shepherded by our insatiable curiosity and desire for connection, enduring inspiration, and a sense of levity that we can all benefit from. We're looking to find the magic in the human experience. Buckle up, baby. Your evolution is waiting. Hello and welcome to Almost 30 Podcast. Hi, everyone. Welcome to the show. It's Linz and Krista. Thanks for joining us for another banger. I'm so glad you're here. <laughs> I'm wearing my sweatshirt is the same color as the wall. So it's all good. I'm a floating head. It's all good. This is my like we break all tone rules. is like stone. I kind of like it. color it's palette. Like nice and it's nice and soothing. We usually yeah. wear like I'm wearing a skin color. Yeah. I think I wore this in our studio, our old studio, and I blended in with the curtains. I'm like, anyone want to direct me? Like, we uh -huh. need... I need support. I spoke at this event recently, and I got off stage, and I was like, dude, I fucking crushed it. I was amazing. And I said that because I overcame a lot of self-sabotaging practices to get there. I practiced a lot, whatever. So I got off, and I, like, walk out, and the guys were like, yo, your outfit was amazing. <laughs> and I was like... I can buy this. I, I can't buy the skills that I've been working on forever. <laughs> but they were like, it was so bright against the thing. And I was like, yeah, actually, I didn't realize that, that the elf, it's just, it's all it's part of the package, to be honest. But I know we learned that. I feel like we learned that back in the pop sugar days where we would yep. see people match. Chrissy Teigen. Yep. Chrissy Teigen would match the set. And we're like, God damn, that it's, is everything. It's next level. Yeah, it's what you do kind of when you're in our space. And I can feel people doing it with us. It's like you kind of watch. You're like, oh, what are they doing? How are they sitting? What is their outfit? What is like going on? Because it's so much more than just like what someone's saying. It's like their whole presence for better or worse online. But anyways, I'm excited about this conversation because this episode on Girls Gotta Eat, the homies, Ashley and Raina, was incredible. It was so good. And then Vienna, Mindful MFT, is Connor's wife who was on the show as well. And her book was really, really powerful. Our conversation was great. So I think this is going to be such a good one. And we always need a little bit more man energy in our lives. Yeah, it was so refreshing. I have to say, I, I don't think I've sat down. I don't think I've sat down with a man <laughs> in our <laughs> You're like, telling interview me, context in a little while. Chris and I have been doing interviews on our own in our respective cities when we're not together. And it was just really, really nice to have that like solid conscious presence from him. And we've had that with a few of our male guests, a handful, more than a few. And it's like, whew, you just, there's something about it that like regulates your nervous system. Yes. And we were meeting for the first time, but it felt so, so comfortable. So we have on Connor Beaton on the podcast of Man Talks. He has a new book out, Men's Work. And I really love that we just allowed the conversation to flow in many different avenues of exploration. And it also felt like it all connected in a really beautiful way. But I did want to bring this one topic that I found so interesting. And you ironically were like, oh, my God, I just I've become obsessed with this concept through listening to someone else. And that is this idea that as women, we have like an initiation into womanhood. It's like our menstrual cycle. This 
kind of marks the beginning of womanhood and all the things, which if I th really think about it is, it's true and also hilarious a little bit. I don't know why, like it's very true on like a physical level. And I think societally, then we're kind of thrust into this, like you could get pregnant and all these things. But that's interesting. I actually don't feel the weight of it as like an initiation into womanhood. And I don't want to go too far off track, but I think it's because there was so much shame and also like just ways to cover up this transition. So it was like, wear the pad and here's how to use a tampon. And, you know, you can do this in private. And there was no, it was like kind of like, this is going to suck. You're going to have this for the next 20 years. And there was no like joyful initiation <laughs> in my experience. And I think a lot of people feel that too. And if you don't, and you had a great experience, amazing. But for men, that doesn't really exist. And Connor was half joking when he's like, yeah, like we start to get like random boners. Like, you know, it's just, we have wet dreams. It's kind of weird, but there's not like an event or an initiation to welcome us into manhood like women have. And he said that what he's seen in his work specifically is that men will subconsciously find a way to seek out that initiation. And oftentimes it manifests in a rock bottom where men will hit a rock bottom in whatever capacity, maybe in their health or in their career or in their relationships or all three or more. And they will use that as a way to overcome, to kind of like defeat the rock bottom and climb mm -hmm. up from oh my God, yeah. where they were to the top and kind of use that. I had five men pop up in my mind of like Same. those who have kind of subconsciously chosen a rock bottom of sorts or are still kind of on the way down because they didn't have that opportunity to be initiated or be accepted into or really feel the power of their manhood. Yeah, I have so much to say about this. And I'm so grateful we're talking about it because I heard it on one of the podcasts that I listen to. No podcasts that are usually in our space I'm listening to, but he was talking about this concept and he's like, women are initiated naturally by life and then men in most societies and cultures have had to choose their initiation path, whether that was a vision quest or whether that was war or whether that was leaving the house to like fight and battle or whatever it was. And now as a society and culture, our men don't really have those ways of creating their purpose or their path or being initiated like you were talking about. It's interesting because women have multiple initiation points through life, like motherhood, because there's a lot of single mothers out there. So motherhood as this very physical, like visual initiation. Obviously, fatherhood is a huge initiation, of course, but there's a different experience for the mother and for, you know, the woman in that way. And then there's menopause. You lose that fertility cycle that you have and you lose that experience. And women's bodies change so much. Like we have this like initiation of like our ever-changing and ever-evolving body in our lives. And I think because men don't and lack that initiatory opportunity right now that we've had throughout culture. And usually it's like the hero's journey vibe where it's like you leave the house, you go into the woods on your own and you meet your deepest, darkest shadows and you actually are doing something that's really challenging that can help rearrange 
your psyche into like the hero. And so it's like men don't really have that as an opportunity now. So they have to create it, especially in the West, where they're like, I'm going to do the rock bottom. I'm going to blow everything up. I'm going to do all these things. And I've noticed a lot of men in my life, it's like they will create that journey for themselves. And then they have to create the villain in that story. And that villain will be, my dad was never around. My ex-girlfriend was this. My teacher was this. You see a lot of athletes like Michael Jordan, as an example, or Steve Jobs, or other ones that I can think about. It's always like in their journey, they have that one teacher or person part of their story that was like, you're never going to make it. You're never going to turn into anything. And then that becomes their fuel for a lot of their life until they become on the other side of their purpose and passion. But yeah, I think that's fascinating. And it's like, how can we support our men in finding ways to healthily initiate themselves into manhood? Yeah, it's like almost that creating of adversity, not whether not where yeah, there isn't totally. makes sense. any, but it's yeah. And I find that sometimes Sean does that and he'll say it out loud. He's like, I work well with adversity. So he's like, I'm kind of creating it right now. And it's like, I think there's the aspect of the masculine that really likes to work with that it's almost like primal yep yeah it's very there's also interesting i was reading something about sex and long-term relationships and they were talking about how women release oxytocin through bonding and they were talking about men releasing another type of hormone there's another type of hormone norepinephrine maybe i should look it up and all of you neuroscientists dm me But basically, there's another type of hormone that's released that men release through group activities or overcoming adversity and challenges or achieving goals. And that for men, that hormone is actually stronger for them than the bonding hormone. So the example that he gave was if you were having sex, if men are having sex and they're like, I'm going to get you off two times, I'm going to we're going to have sex three times, we're going to do all these things. And women are like, oh, my God, I just wanted to feel good. I just want to connect with you. I just want to. That is women wanting the oxytocin to connect and men are actually wanting to have that hormone that feels better for them, that feels more connected for them, that's based on achievement or based on like us working together towards a common goal. And men have usually had that through wars and obviously things that we've been talking about that have supported them in the release of that hormone in a healthy way that helps them create stable relationships. But right now, because they don't have that, it's like, how can we help men to support themselves in what is biologically natural for them Mm -hmm. in their life, in the release of that hormone, which gives them purpose. Whereas women, we prioritize the connection. But I thought that was interesting because I was like, oh yeah, I've thought about that with men and sex where, you know, we always have our perception of sex where we're like, we want it to be slow or we want it to be all of these ways. And there's actually an expression that men have as well that's different than ours that makes them feel on purpose or fulfilled or whatever that's actually related to like achievement (laughs) Mm -hmm. yeah it makes total sense and I think it just points to the importance of seeking to understand rather than being right especially when it comes to understanding the opposite gender and this brings me to one of the other really big pieces of this conversation which was toxic masculinity and how it's doing more harm than help. And yeah, there's just so many signals being sent to men that like the way that they are is inherently wrong and inherently bad because of this conversation around toxic masculinity. 
the conversation around toxic masculinity is doing more harm than good because we know that toxic masculinity is doing more harm, right? Yes, correct. So I guess like us talking poorly about how bad toxic masculinity is the problem too. Yeah, and I guess the conversation around toxic masculinity doesn't seek to understand. You know, it's very much a blanket statement that I think a lot of men and a lot of people have internalized and not necessarily sought to discuss and find the nuance in it. He was talking about toxic masculinity and how it has affected how men approach women. And basically, there is this aspect of this kind of zeitgeist conversation around toxic masculinity that has caused men to kind of despise those parts of themselves, even though the parts of themselves that could be toxic, could be expressed in a non-toxic way. So if, for example, if a man is really values like being a leader, there could be a toxic expression of that or a more positive conscious expression of that. But because it's looped within that toxic masculinity conversation, Men are finding that they're just not allowing themselves to be expressed at all and feel almost like nervous. They're just, they're really censoring themselves. And this is not a conversation around like, oh, what was men? More conversation around like, how can we bring more depth to this conversation rather than taking this very broad concept of toxic masculinity and applying it to all men? Because I do think there's toxic femininity. There's 100%. What do you mean? Of course. Yeah. yeah I'm always just like, if we're going to be talking about the perpetrators, the men as the perpetrators, if people are going to go with that, it's like, then they need the most healing. They need the most expression. They need the most conversation. They need the most understanding. They need the most of everything. And yeah. so I could see how that would totally be harmful. And I think I've seen that with a lot of very generous, kind men in my life where they've been like, very censored. They feel very misunderstood. They feel very cornered. They feel very judged. They feel very paralyzed by the perception that whatever they're going to do or however they're going to express their masculinity is, is bad or toxic. And I think about that in the sense of like, it's suppressing both men and women because I think the feminine, we have rage. The rage is very feminine and we have anger as well. But it's like, it's I feel suppressed in rage and anger. Like, I feel like those emotions are not okay. So there's that mm -hmm. part of my experience where, and I can only imagine where men who naturally probably have more aggression, just based on biologically, based on testosterone, having that suppressed is probably feels really funky in the body and it is, mm -hmm. comes out all sorts of sideways. And so yeah, I think it's really beautiful to open up this conversation and talk about it because I think to have men be experienced in the way that women want, we need to understand and we need to listen. I know women, even though I haven't talked to them about it, but everyone that I've talked to is expressing the same type of energy from a man that they want, which is one that is incredibly in their masculine and grounded exactly. and embodied and present and there's someone that I have a crush on online and it's like literally the most random person on earth. And it's like someone that people would never know. They're like older and it's a bizarre experience. But I was like sitting in my bed and I'm like, why am I so obsessed with them? And I was like, because they are so present. Like this human is 
literally the way that he's listening to people is like the Olympics. It is like he's dissecting every word that they're saying and listening so intently. It's like, that's all he's doing. And I'm just like, oh, that presence is so nice. You know what I mean? That Mm -hmm. like full focus presence is so nice. But if we are seeking to have more present men, even for children or even for a partner, even for a father, even for a coworker or whatever, this isn't just like romantic relationships. If you're a woman dating a man, it's like any type of the masculine within us. There also is the masculine within us that we are telling ourselves is toxic if we are talking about toxic masculinity. So how can we bring it back to the experience of like liberating parts of everyone and ourselves? Yeah, the piece around that you brought up that There are aspects of the masculine that the feminine really desire if we're just talking about the energetics. And so that's why, and we talk about this, kind of the confusion. There's confusion around, wait, so these parts are bad, but yet this is what I'm getting messages about that the feminine desire. Because it's true. And he shares data on that, how there's that weird gap between the messaging around toxic masculinity, but then what women are desiring and what men feel like they can't express any longer. So it's a very nuanced conversation, but like such an interesting one that made me self-reflect on just, yeah, what I desire. And then also the strength of the messages that come about in like these spaces that use phrases like toxic masculinity or whatever that are very real, but then how we take that on as our own truth when there's no real understanding of it. Totally. You know, I'm someone that's been harmed by men in my life at various points in time when I've had to really work on that, but I've never felt like it was, yeah, I never kind of go to one thing as the thing, you know, as the toxic masculinity. And I've been thinking about how there's a conversation in our space around being more in our feminine. Most of the women in our community that I work with want to be more in their feminine, which is really beautiful. But then it's also what is the part of us that's like feeling ashamed or feeling like we're wanting to move away from the masculine and why are we seeing that as bad? And I don't think that what people are trying to do is move out of the masculine. I think it's moving out of the parts of them that aren't even in the masculine or feminine. It's like they're just the parts that are unaligned or the parts that like aren't serving or the parts that aren't healthy. And it's not like, yeah. So I was just thinking about that too, because I think there's a lot of people that are trying to like, also women that are also looking at their masculine as bad. Mm-hmm. Yeah, very good point. We did not discuss that, but I wanted to say- Yin and yang, baby. Love it. all parts. We're here to love all love parts. It. Yeah, we were talking about how women are actually reading his new book, Men's Work, as well, to understand their partners, their brothers, their fathers. It's pretty cool. Pretty. Profound. I love women, dude. We, like, never stop. It's just I know. crazy. We're like, like- Guys are like, I'm trying to do work for men. And we're like, we want to know too. Like We're just like, he's like, no, please. I'm trying to do a retreat just for men. And we're like, we will sell this retreat out. Just give us the information. (laughs) Please. We're always so hungry. We're just hungry. I love us. Let us be a part of the process. Little sleuths. We're just always trying to figure it out. You can learn more about Connor's work at mantalks.com. He is a dad. He is a husband. He is an author. He is a coach. 
I think you're really going to love, love, love this conversation. Be sure to follow him on Instagram at Mantalks. And the new book again is Men's Work. You can find more information about Almost 30 at almost30.com, where we have our partnership links. We have our membership, which you can join. We have our courses and programs. We have some really, really, really great content there. If you want to start a podcast, we can support you in that. We have courses and programs for podcasters. We're on TikTok. It's popping off Almost 30 Podcast, Almost 30 Podcast on Instagram. And then we have our Daily Dose, which is Morning Microdose. So it's almost like the TikTok of podcasts. You just get a little hit of inspiration, of motivation every single day without ads on our second podcast, Morning Microdose. Enjoy this conversation with Connor. We will see you on the other side. Love you guys. This episode is brought to you by BetterHelp. Oh, therapy, y'all. I don't know. I just, I don't know what I did before therapy, to be completely honest with you. I think I was kind of a mess, but you know, found it when I was meant to, but I've been going to therapy for about six years now, which is so crazy. So crazy, but it has changed my life and I will continue to invest in therapy for as long as I can. I feel like it has totally, totally made my relationships better, made my career better. Better. I am a better mom. I am a better wife. I'm a better friend. I'm a better daughter and sister. Y'all, it's just the gift that keeps on giving. So if you're thinking of starting therapy, give BetterHelp a try. It is entirely online, designed to be convenient, flexible, and suited to your schedule. All you have to do, this is it. Just fill out a brief questionnaire to get matched with a licensed therapist and switch therapists anytime for no additional charge. If you get matched and you're like, yeah, not quite a fit, they make it easy and it's free to change. But I've had a lot of friends try BetterHelp and love it. So I really, really encourage you to start therapy. It's been the best decision I've ever made for myself. Find more balance with BetterHelp. Visit betterhelp.com slash almost 30 today to get 10% off your first month. That's betterhelp.com slash almost 30. I am juggling quite a bit lately. <laughs> I have a new baby, um, six months in, and uh, we are finishing our book and running a business and a marriage and a house. And um, it's just a lot, but everything is all good and just my dream, but it's a lot. But I have found that if my health routine is on point, then everything runs smoothly. And one huge piece of that routine is my supplementation. And Symbiotica has just always been a constant in my routine. Uh, if you haven't heard of Symbiotica, they're a health and wellness company that does everything with intention. I mean that from the bottom of my heart. Like I know them. <laughs> Shervine has been on the podcast many times. I just have seen how passionate, how incredibly intelligent, how dedicated he is to creating products um, that are clean, plant-based, uh, without toxic or harmful chemicals, which we need more of that in the world. Um, so let me just run you through what I'm taking. Um, I take the vitamin D3 K2. It's the liposomal form. I just squirt 12 little pumps in my mouth every single morning. I also take their B12. Um, I'm also obsessed with the liposomal vitamin C. I have these little packets whether it's winter or whatever season, it's obviously great for immunity, but it also um, is amazing because it has biotin, one of nature's most beautifying ingredients. Uh, so I've seen an improvement in my skin, hair, and nail growth as well. 
I do have mom brain, um, but I'm doing my best to just support my brain health in any way. So for brain health, focus and memory, I really love taking their liposomal magnesium L-threonate. Um, it's an innovative form of magnesium that is able to cross the blood brain barrier. It supports brain health, mood, immune system function, and overall well-being. It's incredible and tastes amazing. It's like this yummy vanilla cream flavor. That's the thing with uh, Symbiotica products. They taste unbelievable. So it really makes taking all of these supplements so easy, so yummy. And I actually look forward to it. So if you want to give Symbiotica a try, there is no better time right now is the time. Symbiotica.com, C-Y-M-B-I-O-T-I-K-A. Use our code almost 30, 20% off site-wide. So major. And then when you bundle and subscribe, which I highly recommend because you never want to run out of anything, uh, you're going to get an extra discount. So just do it up. Symbiotica.com and use the code almost 30 for 20% off site-wide. I would love to start kind of with having a son. Yeah. So I'm curious how it's been impactful as someone who, you know, has obviously done so much work, but I can imagine when you have a child, it's like, you almost can't prepare for it. No, you know, it's interesting because I think kids are just like mirrors for the little versions of us that maybe didn't get to have a voice or understand what was happening when we were growing up. And it's been interesting. A lot of my own journey and my own story has started to really bubble up to the surface in a different way. Like I had my parents get divorced when I was three and there was some stuff happening in my parents' marriage that I think was really impacting my family system and impacting me as a kid. And knowing what I know now about attachment and how the first three years are the most really like important and formative for us in terms of our attachment. Having my son in my life has really brought a lot of that to the front and center. And I think it's brought up a lot of the grief that I had stored in me, you know, about being a boy who didn't have his dad around. And it was brutal. You know, it was like really brutal. Like I remember, like my parents got divorced when I was three. They both remarried when I was five and six. They both had a daughter with their respective other partners when I was seven and eight. And then they both had a son when I was 10 and 11. And so I actually grew up in these identical family systems on the outside, right? Siblings were the same age, parents were the same age, but everyone was polar opposite. Like mm -hmm. my mom and my stepmom are just totally different humans. My dad and my stepdad, totally different humans. And so I grew up viewing a lot of juxtaposition of character and personality. And it really got me curious as to like, why are people the way that they are? And anyway, to come back to the sort of crux of the question, I remember being a kid and when my mom and my stepdad got married, like six, seven years old. And there were nights where I was just like inconsolable mm. because I missed my dad so much and I didn't understand why he wasn't around and I didn't understand why I couldn't talk to him. And, you know, it was really, it was really a heartbreaking thing as a kid who really just wanted, like, I loved my dad. I idolized him. And so I think having my own son has brought some of those emotions back to the surface of 
man, I've done a lot of work on myself because I was a shit show for a long time. <laughs> and it's almost like this culmination of like, yeah, I did a lot of this work and I thought it was for me initially and maybe for whoever I was going to date. But there's this, there's this realization that a lot of it, while it shows up in how I do my business and my mission, my purpose in the world, a lot of it really was unbeknownst to me was for him. I was for my boy. And I get to really be present for him and love him. And in a way that, you know, I think in a way that I really wanted. And I think that's unbelievably meaningful that for us as parents, we're not going to get everything right. I know I'm going to screw up. I had a mentor of mine who said two things that always stuck with me. He said, I would die for my kids, but I won't live my life for them, which mm. I really love and appreciate. Love that. And two, he said, in he's Irish, and he said, you're going to fuck up your kids no matter what you do. <laughs> <laughs> and that always it's stuck comforting. with me. I was like, yeah, I've done all, these, all this work, and you know, I know I'm not going to get it right. I don't need to be yeah. perfect dad. I don't need to be super dad. I just want to be present in his life. And I think that a lot of the work that I've done has made it so that, you know, he's 25 months now. And I've been there for him. I set up my business in a way where when he was born, I spent the first two and a half months at home with him and my wife. And it's been incredibly rewarding and healing. And it's just a lot of things. Yeah. It's just a lot of things that I didn't expect at all. And oh. I thought I was prepared, you know, and then he came on the scene and there's just things that you can't prepare for. Like nobody... People can tell you what it's going to be like in terms of the sleep deprivation. But until you're in that moment where like you're six months deep and you haven't slept right at all in six months. And there's this part of you that's just like raging out and like, OK, how much longer do I have to deal with this bullshit? And, yeah. You know, it's interesting to to see what parenting brings up. But I feel very grateful to have so many tools and to feel so well equipped to be there for him and to be a space of regulation for him. Yeah. Yeah. Thank you for sharing that. It's just like, you know, whatever you believe, but like, how good is God in that way? God, creator, divine, whatever is happening, like that you had that experience as a child mm. and now you're being given this opportunity not to be perfect, not to make it right, not to do any of that but rather to have an experience and to give your son an experience that, yeah, you desired. Mm -hmm. And yeah, I just, I'm kind of in awe of moments like that. Like it truly is such a beautiful gift always. And then also just this like threshold piece too, because I know you talk about this in your work with men where there is kind of that healthy pushing of our like limits and thresholds. Mm -hmm. And being able to self-regulate in those moments and being able to understand our limits and push them and how that is healthy. And yeah, I mean, I can only imagine as like a parent, like you said, the sleep deprivation, it's like, <laughs> it's real. Wow. Wow. Yeah. And in those moments where you want to snap on your partner or blame something on them or someone else, it's like, yeah, in those moments, what have you found to be the most useful tools that you have? Mm. So there's a number of them. I think I just want to talk about the threshold first, because I think this is super important. I see a lot of people navigating the threshold. I'm a huge proponent of Carl Jung and the Jungian mm -hmm. frameworks, not necessarily because I 
think that everything that he talked about was true or accurate, but because a lot of his work was based in mythology and archetypes and symbolism. And I think that myth holds truths that we sometimes can't just put into sentences, you know, into like very simple phrases. And one of the archetypes that I've come to know and realize and get familiar with in my own life and that I see a lot of people struggling with is something called the guardian of the threshold. And there's a specific archetype that whenever we want to create change, whenever we're trying to alter something in our life, a behavior, a belief, something within our relationship, that there comes a time and moment where the guardian of the threshold shows up and tests us. And that might be a test of old behavior patterns, people that come in to tempt us to see whether or not, are you going to move back to the old pattern yeah. or are you actually going to punch through this new way of being? And I always think of it as, I think it was Indiana Jones, I don't know. It wasn't the Temple of Doom. I think it was the Don't Lost get this wrong. Arc. I know. I'm going to like the fan boys and girls out there are going to like Because I've seen everyone me. 20 times. I know, right? But there's this moment where Indiana has to cross an invisible bridge, mm. right? And he's met with this impossible decision of you have to have the faith that the bridge is there and you have to step on it before it actually manifests. And that is the, that's the guardian of the threshold. We Oftentimes in life, when we're needing to shift and change, it's actually demanding that we take a step of faith, maybe not a leap, but take mm -hmm. a step. And for me, a lot, of the, a lot of the work that I've done over the years has required that I take that first step and then the bridge will appear or I'll stumble on my face, you know, and yeah. get it wrong. <laughs> I've taken a step in the wrong direction and I learn and I can go back. But that guardian of the threshold, I think, is something that especially in parenting, but I think in being an entrepreneur, especially in relationships, all of our shit comes out in relationships, just all of it. All of it. Jung said that- Purposely. Yeah, right. <laughs> Jung said that marriage is the fastest horse in the race in individuation, right? Mm. Or in this process towards wholeness, that relationship is where all of our stuff comes out. So come back to your initial question. Very simple things sometimes, like reconnecting to the breath, our breath is our dial for our autonomic nervous system. So most of us in our daily lives are living in a very stressed out state. So we're in a more sympathetic dominant state, right? So you've got two parts to your autonomic nervous system. You've got your sympathetic and your parasympathetic. And your sympathetic is like the gas pedal, right? It's the stress response. It's the go. There's adrenaline. There's cortisol. That's what we need in the meetings and dealing with certain situations, getting the emails done, et cetera. And then the parasympathetic is that part that's the calm, the rest, the digest, the easygoing, the more relaxed. And your breath is the part that actually can help you turn the dial. So the more stressed you are, the more that your breath per minute goes up, the more that your heart rate goes up, and the more that you can feel that sort of like stressed, anxious response. Now, when you're a parent, that's amplified. And if you're in a relationship where you feel anxious or you're feeling like you're not getting what you want or need, that part of your body, that part of your nervous system is getting turned on. Mm. And so what we want to do is we want to start to turn down that dial. And so I created a very simple practice with my son as an example to co-regulate with him, where when he starts to while out and he's unmanageable, he's throwing a tantrum, he's doing whatever, and I can feel myself getting pulled into the fray, you know, yeah. getting pulled into the storm, I'll pick him up. 
and I'll look at him and I'll say, inhale, exhale. And he might throw a little bit of a tantrum for a little bit longer, but I'll just remain in that cycle. And what happens is that my body starts to regulate, my nervous system starts to regulate. And then he feels that and he's gotten into the habit now of like, you know, and so he'll do it with me. And so I think that sometimes we overcomplicate what we actually need when it comes to these grounding modalities, regulating our nervous system. Mm -hmm. And there's a tremendous amount of data that has gone into helping people with things like PTSD and trauma. And what they've found is a very simple thing. And maybe I'll pause on this, is that if you inhale through your nose for the count of four and hold for two, and then exhale through your mouth for a count of six or seven, that natural breath cycle will do a couple things. One, it's going to regulate how many breaths you're taking per minute, which will actually begin to force your heart rate to slow down. And that forcing the heart rate to slow down will send a signal to your brain because there's 80% more information traveling from your body to your brain than there is your brain to your body. So that natural slowing down of the breath, slowing down of the heart will send a signal to your brain saying, we're okay. We're okay. We're all right. So you can do that breath cycle, whether you're in conflict with your partner or your kids are freaking out. And that very simple tool is something that will send the signal to your body and your brain that it's time to calm Mm -hmm. and it's okay to calm. And so those are just some simple things that I do on a regular basis. I know those are like very tactical, but they're Powerful. they're real and they work. And they work for people who have PTSD and trauma and they work for people who have anxiety and they work for people just across the spectrum. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it makes me think about, you know, that just scene of you and your son. We can kind of use that model or template in really any relationship. If your partner comes home from work and is fired up and just wiling out, being that oak tree, being that stability. I often, I even had a conversation with my husband last night and I just felt, I felt like the most calm I was all day. (laughs) And even though he was having like a, he's like, I want to vent about this, which I was like ready and wanting him to do. I was like, wow, this is so powerful because I noticed just how he didn't escalate in a way that maybe if I was feeding it, Mm-hmm. It would. And so it's just something to think about in relationship. And I just love that you brought up the breath because it's something, one, that's free, two, we all do it all day, but we don't necessarily do it in a way that's conscious mm-hmm. and intentional and slow and deep and in our bellies. Yeah. It's all up here. It's like, shh. And so, that's, a, that's a panic response, yeah. right? I've noticed as the therapeutic industry has become so large and so prominent within our culture. I've noticed that the simple tools are sometimes lost mm-hmm. and we overcomplicate things. And so most of us, because of the nature of our realities right now, inflation and the economy and threats of war and climate change and all these things on top of relational stress, parenting mm-hmm. stress, financial stress, we're just taxed. Most people's nervous systems are taxed. And so if you can be someone on a day-to-day basis who can share a grounded nervous system with the people around you, you are providing a, an incalculable service to humanity in a way. And that might sound big and woo and existential, but try it out, right? Be grounded in yourself around people and notice how they shift. You can almost notice 
people's demeanor change, their breath slow down, they kind of relax, they ease mm -hmm. into it. And this is the gift that we need to be able to give one another in trying times. But if we're not practicing it on a regular basis, and if we're not doing it for ourselves, and we're constantly waiting for other people to come and help us feel yes. centered and feel grounded and feel okay, then we're in a lot of trouble mm -hmm. as, as a species. And mm -hmm. that's kind of what's happening in a place where you know, most people go online every single day and they've outsourced their nervous system to social media and the internet and they're dysregulated because they're constantly interacting with other people's dysregulated nervous systems and minds. Yeah, right? that's something that we definitely don't think about. And you saying that right in that moment, I'm like, whoa. Yeah. We are interacting with people's dysregulated nervous systems when we are on scrolling Instagram, scrolling TikTok, bing, bing, bing. You know, it's like, yeah. wow. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I think we just need to return to some of these simple things. And in relationships, I mean, my wife and I do this too, right? I'll always just try and pause and take a breath and like mm -hmm. feel my feet on the floor because she's spicy. You know, she's got lots of yeah. heat. Yeah. It's a <laughs> nice balance. I, I, do you appreciate that balance? 100%. Yeah. 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 I, nice. I, I like potency mm -hmm. in almost all aspects of life. Mm -hmm. You know, I think I've, I like to see where my edge is as a man. I like to see where my edge is in many different ways. Mm -hmm. And I think there's something to being with a woman who has her own connection to her own fire, you know, and that it's not too much for me. And I think for yeah. her, that's been a, a beautiful gift as well, because mm -hmm. when we first started dating, she tells this story. So I'm not what I'm about to tell is not, <laughs> it's, you know, she tells it all the time where. We've been dating for a few months and we were on vacation somewhere and I was driving and she was in the passenger seat and we were in conversation. I don't, I have no idea what the heck she said, but she said something that crossed the line and that was really disrespectful to me. And, mm. and I just you know, took a breath and turned to her and I said, don't speak to me like that. Mm. I don't like that. And she was silent and quiet and it wasn't combative and it wasn't a threat. It was just like, that's not okay with me. Yeah. And the next day, she didn't say anything for a while. And we went on with her day and we like, you know, kept traveling. The next day she was like, that was the most honest, yeah. respectful check that I've ever got. And I just didn't know what to do with it. Totally. And, but she's like, I felt so safe. Mm -hmm. And I immediately felt like I can be okay in this relationship. I can be safe with you. And we don't often think about safety being correlated or connected to boundaries to like, I'm going to set a boundary with you, right? I'm going to say that's not okay. There's something there about women, and I, I don't want to put words in your wife's mouth, but I've felt this way, this feeling of feeling too much. Hmm. And I think early on in my dating life, it was like, I'm too much for people. These guys don't really understand me. I definitely wasn't being as vulnerable as I could because I didn't feel safe, but yeah, that too muchness. And then when you're held in your, whether it's too muchness or maybe outside of her in this scenario, that was a little shadowy or like just a little side of her that mm -hmm. maybe isn't like a little testy. Yeah, a little testy. Mm -hmm. And you hold it and you also are clear in the way that it made you feel. Yeah, it's so interesting to think of that feeling of like safety because. And I'm curious, I'm like kind of reflecting on it in real time, like honesty is safety to me. And also like just having such a solid mirror 
Mm-hmm. And I, I think innately as human beings, we know that partners are meant to serve this incredible purpose that they're meant to serve. And so when we get those moments like that, especially early in dating, this happened with me and my husband where I was like his directness and his clarity. I was like, Oh my gosh, this is a lot. Mm. But there was a part of me that I felt it in my heart where I was like, wow, like I, I respect him. I like him, but I'm not ready for this. And then eventually we got together. But I think there's a part of us that knows that this is for our greatest and highest good. This is kind of like what Mm -hmm. our soul is meant to do in relationship is not to be comfortable and enabled. Yeah. And all of that. Yeah. Well, I mean, it's easy to love the parts of the person that you love. Yeah. Right. It's like if you're funny and I like your humor, like it's easy to love that part. The real test of any relationship is can I learn to love the parts of you that I don't like, mm-hmm. right? And can you learn to love the parts of me that you don't like? Because the truth is that I probably don't like those parts either in myself, right? The parts that you dislike about me, I probably don't like them either. The reactivity, the anger, the volatility, the shutting down or the anxiousness or the overtexting or however that part manifests in the relationship we oftentimes discard those parts of us into the shadow, Mm. right? And we don't want people to see them. We don't want people to know about them. And those are the parts of us that oftentimes get in the way of us actually just feeling loved. It's like, oh, I can't stand this part of me. And so we try and hide it in our relationship. We don't want other people to know about it. We don't want to talk about it. But then to have somebody embrace that shadowy part and say, I don't like that, but I still love you. Mm-hmm. And it's like, oh, I mean, a hundred years of healing in right. that, it's those just, moments. It's, an, it's, it's <laughs> because it's the thing that we crave as kids. Yes, that so many of us miss, mm. and and that so often goes astray and goes awry within the family system. Because of course it does. We're all going to have our wounding. Nobody's going to grow up in in a perfect family system, and nor should they. Pain is. I mean, the first line of my book is a man's work begins in pain. Pain has a valuable place within our life. And the sad part is that we try and extricate that from our relationships, from our existence. And we villainize these things that have happened to us, or we think that we should live a life free of any hardship. It's like, no, man, like that gives our life zest. Mm -hmm. There's awe and wonder sometimes that's baked into the hardship that we've experienced. And we've all had that. The stuff that I've gone through growing up as a kid, as a young man, my addictions, battle with pornography and weed and alcohol and Mm -hmm. cheating and all this stupid crap that I did. You know, I can look back on that and say, I could carry shame around it and judge it and say like, what a piece of garbage and blah, blah, blah. But that disconnection from that, that non-acceptance, that not working to bring that into who I am will actually serve to create more of it. That's the strange part about our shadow. That's Mm -hmm. the strange part about the aspects of ourselves that we don't like. It's like anybody struggling with anxiety the worst thing that we can do is like, oh, I hate this anxiety. It's like, well, that's going to create more of it. Yeah. We have to welcome in the dragon at the door. And we need to be able to have people in our corner 
that can help us do that Mm -hmm. because doing it alone is very hard. In your work with thousands of men all over the world, what have you observed and experienced related to men and their metabolism of pain or how they meet pain? Yeah, it's interesting because sometimes it's culturally dependent, religious dependent. Sure. But I think for the most part within male culture, within masculine culture, we've been taught to, to like suck it up, stuff it down, don't deal with it. Right. And there's a couple, like in the book, I talk about the one rule of men. If anybody's ever seen Fight Club, Fight Club is just a, it's essentially a film about masculinity, right? Is really what it is. And a man going through a psychotic break, essentially, but. (laughs) (laughs) And that. And that. But it's, you know, it's really a film about masculinity. And the first rule of Fight Club is you don't talk about it. You don't talk about Fight Club. And that's really the first rule of being a man is you don't talk about what it's like to be a man who's struggling, who's suffering, who's in pain, who's been abused, who is hurting, who's lost, who's alone, who's isolated. And you don't talk about what it's like to be a man who has hurt other people. And so that that's part of the first rules that we have to break in order to really start to build some kind of relationship with our own pain. Because that pain is dictating our life in some capacity. There's a American therapist named Francis Weller who says your pain has its own intelligence. I think that's fundamentally true. And I I think that when we as men don't come into contact with our own pain and start to understand it and start to understand that it has a place in our life, then it will drive our lives. It'll Mm -hmm. drive our decisions. It'll drive our choices and we'll feel powerless and helpless to it through addictions, through bad behaviors, through eating junk food at midnight when you have an important meeting the next day or smoking weed until three o'clock in the morning when you have a presentation the next morning or whatever it is. So I think that's part of it. And then the other thing that I've come to see is men have for generations, and some of this is rooted in, from a historical standpoint, it's rooted in war and specifically rooted in World War I and World War II. But men have grown up in a culture that has said there's. So the more that you as a man can suppress what you're feeling, not show it, not talk about it, pretend like it doesn't exist, the more that you can do that with your grief, with your sadness, with your anger, with your disappointment and your shame and your embarrassment, the stronger that you'll be. And the challenge is that for 99% of men, that will break them. It will just break them because they'll come to a point where they can't hold in the pain that they've been carrying from childhood abuse or parents' divorce or getting bullied in school or not having any friends or not being able to date women, which is a big thing today, right? It's like 66% of men between 18 and 29 are single and 50% of those 66% of men aren't looking for a relationship, right? One of three men between 18 and 29 haven't been sexually active, right? And so those, but those stats for women are radically different. And so for a lot of guys, there's this big isolation that's starting to Mm. permeate through male culture. They're isolated from work. They're isolated from friends. They're isolated from women and they're isolated from family. And so when we've grown up in this environment that says, just suppress it, the consequences are that oftentimes in order to suppress what we're feeling, we have to disconnect from the things that we love. 
right? I can't stay in relationship with you and in contact with you when the burden that I'm carrying internally that I don't want you to know about is painful, right? And heavy. And so for a lot of guys, they will push people away, mm. right? And I get messages like this all the time from men. Do I have to break up with my partner in order to do the work? Do I need to be alone in order to do the work? It's like, no, man, you actually need to be around people to do the work. And maybe you need to be around other men, right? Maybe you shouldn't be bringing all of it sure. into your relationship. But I think that that's some of the stuff that I see with guys in terms of how we've been taught to relate to our pain, that there's merit in sort of stuffing it down. There's merit in ignoring it. And the more that you can ignore that pain or not let that pain, quote unquote, get to you, the more masculine you are and the more manly that you are. But it's a misrepresentation of the roots of that, which is stoicism, right? Which is actually about emotional understanding, truly about emotional intelligence, and in some ways about emotional domestication. Mm -hmm. So we actually have to get closer to our emotions and understand them and to begin to work with them to tame them in some way, to have a proper relationship to them. And when I say tame and I say domestic, I don't mean them in a negative connotation. I mean that we've actually done the work to build a relationship with those parts of us so that they're not constantly acting out against us, right? They're not getting in the way of our goals, of our love, of our sexual intimacy, because that's oftentimes what is getting in the way for a lot of men mm -hmm. from the goals and the aims and the intimacy that they're craving. It's, I can't let people know about this part of me. Right. And so I'll cut myself off from them. Yeah. It's a really interesting thing to think about all of these desires that men have to be intimate, to be successful. And I see a lot of men and women going for more of that quick fix of like, okay, so how do I get the promotion? And how do I be a great lover? And there is this, like, they're not aware of, or there's a total avoidance of the root of everything. Mm -hmm. And I think especially for men, that's why I'm so glad you're here. And Krista and I love your work because we're in the space. We're with a lot of women who have a lot of resources for everything, mm -hmm. thankfully. And I feel like it's not as normalized that men tap into these resources and communities around their self-development and mental health and emotional health and physical health. And I'm thankful we're talking about this because I do the loneliness piece is something that I've experienced in my own life watching my brother, my father. And I guess for you, who is someone who is leading and teaching on this and meeting so many men, I'm wondering, like, how do men come to this realization? <laughs> or do you have to, like, knock on everyone's door? Because <laughs> I basically I do door to door sales. No, I mean, <laughs> although I that would do be that, a great business. <laughs> I did do that at one point. I did. I did <laughs> when I was like 17 or 18. I did door to door vacuum sales, which was wow. ridiculous. I tried. I was like selling a twenty three hundred dollar vacuum. I so love fun, that. Fun fact about my ridiculous. <laughs> I mean, past. my mom has had her vacuum for 30 years, so I'm sure that maybe she <laughs> bought it from a door to door vacuum salesman <laughs> like me and made me very happy back in the day. But no, you know, I think, look, I'm going to say a couple of things about the therapeutic industry. I'm going to say about why more men don't come into this work. I think I just prefaced part of that, which is 
you know, kind of rubs against this Marlboro man, lone wolf mentality that a lot of guys are still trying to live into that if I like there's a proving that we as men think needs to happen. And part of that is because our culture has stripped mind initiation out of it. So there's no initiatory processes for a man to go through mm. to understand that it's okay for him to go and get support and help from other people. Yeah. And the whole Richard Rohr said that unless a man goes through a journey of powerlessness, he'll always abuse power, right? Unless a man goes through a journey of powerlessness, he'll always abuse power. And we as men, I think, psychologically, I think we as men know that somewhere in our being. And so when we lack an initiatory process where we would normally experience powerlessness that we can't overcome, that we can't conquer, that we can't dominate, that we can't win against, we walk out into the world and believe that everything is conquerable. Everything is, we can dominate everything. And in some ways, when we operate in that way, life needs to come along and humble us. So that's part of it. The other part of it is that we as men are looking for the threshold. This is back to the threshold conversation. We are looking for a threshold to help demarcate a transition into manhood because we don't have one, right? It's for a lot of women to get their menstruation cycle. And that's a very clear indication. I've moved into a different phase of my life physically. Yeah. For men, that doesn't really happen. We, we hit puberty, maybe our voice changes a little bit. That's not that big of a deal. And then suddenly this is maybe going to be rude or crude, but we start to get boners on the bus and in yeah. classroom and wet dreams and those types of things. That's not really an initiation into manhood. That's just like, well, now I have this different sexual function that's online. Right. So when we miss that, what ends up happening is that we start to crave it. So a lot of men like myself, what I did was I used bottoming out as an initiatory process. Mm. So a lot of men will unconsciously bottom out in life. They'll destroy their career, they'll destroy their relationship, their family, they'll destroy something in their life as an unconscious means to see, can I climb my way back out of this shithole? Can I actually get back out of this place where I feel powerless, right? Because what do we feel at rock bottom? We feel powerless. We feel helpless. It's something that we can't conquer. It's something that we can't dominate. So hitting rock bottom actually has all of the markers of an initiation. It's an inverse one. It's sort of a strange one, right? But when we hit rock bottom, the other thing that we have to do is we usually have to go to our community mm. and we have to start to open up. And so a lot of men come into this work because they've bottomed out or because they're about to or because there's a threat that they might. And they've identified that and they're like, oh shit, <laughs> things aren't good, right? I'm about to implode my career. My marriage is on the brink. This relationship that I really care about, this woman I really care about is like threatening to leave me. What do I do? Hmm. How do I solve this? How do I fix it? Something's really wrong and I can't ignore it anymore. That's a big part of why men come into the work. And then the last piece is, this one's always an interesting one. The therapeutic space is predominantly feminine. It's driven by women. It's run by women. 29% of psychologists are men. It's less for therapists. When you look at enrollment in institutions around America, specifically for psychology, it's like 80% women right now. 
So when a man wants to go into therapy, is being told, go into therapy, what he does is he goes online and he sees a tremendous amount of overwhelming content geared towards women that aren't really speaking to him. They're not talking his language. They're not talking about really even his problem. And the solutions that are being offered are often very feminine in nature. And so he goes out and says, well, like, I don't know if any of this stuff is really for me, which is why our slogan is it's training. It's not therapy because for guys, we've grown up in a culture where it, we're training based. We want to do something. We want to take action. We want to test ourselves. We want to meet our limits and our edge. And there's a lot of research that's showing there's a guy, I believe, Dr. John Barry out of the UK, and he's, he runs an institution specifically for men. And he's done some research around what's the most rewarding thing for men. And what he found was that self-development, being able to work on ourselves as men is, is one of the most rewarding things that we can do because it tests us and it pushes us and all of these things that we love, right? But I think that the therapeutic industry isn't really set up to... I think in the best way, support men. I mean, even the American Psychological Association, the APA, released guidelines for therapists and psychologists and counselors on how to work with men. And in it, they did a couple things, one of which was said that traditional masculinity is dangerous and harmful. That's verbatim. That's wow. line for line in there. And secondly, and this one's a little more controversial, so... And this is new? This was in 20... 19, 2020. Yeah, makes sense. A couple okay. right before the pandemic. Yeah. And the second part was that they said that gender is only a social construct. So for a lot of guys who have gone through puberty and they felt what testosterone is like, <laughs> they hear that and they're like, really, there's no biological implications. Like my biology as a man doesn't have anything to do with how with my masculinity it doesn't have anything. Mm -hmm. So a lot of guys feel like a big, it's like, well, then you don't understand what my experience is like. Mm -hmm. And so I don't have a place. I don't belong within this space. If you think that masculinity is harmful and toxic, why would I go talk to a therapist or a psychologist who's going to try and get me to behave or become a version of myself that I don't necessarily agree with or want to be? Because for a lot of men, we still pride ourselves on being self-leadership oriented, on being able to protect, being able to provide. And that shows up also in what women are looking for, Yes, right? In a lot of ways. And we could go into the data and the research around that. But so I think those are some of the challenges. That's how men usually come into the space. That's why so many men are resistant towards going to therapy and going to see a psychologist, going to couples therapy. Because a lot of the times they feel like they're not welcome mm -hmm. and they feel like they're going to be talking about their partner's problems and that they are going to be the cause of the problem mm -hmm. and their issues are going to be extracted from the equation. Yeah. That's a hard place to want to walk into. Absolutely. But I think that more and more the cultural conversation is starting to make more space to understand men. And I think we need to do a better job because otherwise we lose men to messaging that is antiquated, that is and can be very harmful, and that actually reinforces their isolation and the pain that they're mm -hmm. suffering.
And so I think we need to do a much better job culturally to have these conversations. And I would just finally say before I pause that to talk about the issues that young boys and men are going through does not mean that I or anybody else is anti-women, right? I can say here are the challenges that young boys are facing and still advocate for women in business, in relationships, in culture. Like those two things need to start to coexist. Absolutely. It can't be one or the other. Yeah. Okay, I need to introduce you to a revolutionary new app, um, Superhuman. I have been doing these superhuman activations every single morning for the last three weeks. Let me just tell you, I kind of fell off of my game after I had the baby. Most of my time and energy was going to him still is, but I have been able to carve out time in the morning before I get into the swing with him. And I've been doing these activations. I do a lot of the shorter ones because I don't have a ton of time, but let me just say, this is new. Like this is a new type of audio that, um, are super energizing and really specifically designed to transform you into your future self. So I know a lot of us want to manifest things. I know a lot of us are thinking about planning for the future. Um, but a lot of us feel stuck. And so I've just felt like this has unstuck me in just the most beautiful way. So I've been doing a lot of their pep talks. I've been doing some of their writing activations. Uh, this morning I did the three morning questions. It was a seven minute, really vibey writing activation that I love. So I had my journal out. Um, yesterday I did a pep talk, uh, about tackling procrastination. There's a part of me that procrastinates quite a bit. So I'm just, I love this. I love this. There's going to be an activation for you for this moment, for this day. Uh, it's incredibly supportive. So we actually interviewed Mimi Bouchard, the founder, not too long ago. Check out that interview. Uh, and we have a sample of one of the activations on our feed. So you can check that out as well. It's way easier to implement into your routine and far more effective than any other audio app out there. I've just noticed that I'm doing it much more consistently. So please don't miss out on this crazy deal. They rarely do discounts. On top of the 14-day free trial, get over 60% off your subscription for a limited time only at activation.com slash almost 30. Literally, there is no risk. If you change your mind and forget to cancel after the trial, you're covered by their money back guarantee. The offer is only available through their website, not on the app store. So that's activations.com slash almost 30 for 60% off. It expires soon. It's really interesting that we're living through a time where that is a thing where if you say, I'm concerned about XYZ as it relates to men and young boys, and the reaction or response is more so about what that says about your support of women or your support of the other sex. It's a very interesting time that we're living, like we are here for it, you know, and mm -hmm. the work that you do is so important for this kind of swinging back into balance. The toxic masculinity piece, Krista and I have talked about this a lot, not necessarily on the podcast, <laughs> but in private, maybe a little bit on the podcast, but just, yeah, this like deep compassion, I don't know if that's the right word, or just kind of pain we feel for this like blanket 
statement that masculine is toxic. And I know that's not the exact definition. And we're talking about a specific type of masculinity. But I think people take it to that extreme where it's like the masculine Mm. is toxic. And I guess, you know, it was specifically related to dating. There's a lot of women in our community who are dating and are single. And so I'm wondering how it's kind of caused men to ultimately not be themselves Mm. because of this fear of being toxically masculine, even though (laughs) <laughs> it's like so nebulous. It's like, what, yeah. what is that? Right. So I'm just curious what you see specifically around men approaching women in these like heterosexual situations. Yeah. Maybe I'll just talk about toxic masculinity very briefly. Yes. And then I'll talk about this poll that I ran, which was really fascinating. In the psychological space, in therapeutic space, psychological space, spiritual space, all of those modalities whether it's spirituality, any form of spirituality, any form of psychology, any form of therapeutic modality, it's about acceptance. And it's about being able to build a relationship with the thing that we have an adverse relationship with. And in all of those modalities, what they are all saying unequivocally across the board is when you begin to target something and despise it within yourself, right? We can use anxiety as an example. The worst thing that we can do with our anxiety is say, I fucking hate you. Yeah. I hate you. I hate that you're here. I don't want you. Get away from me. Right? Oh, why do you always show up when I'm in this meeting or around this guy or blah, blah, blah. When we do that, we make that part of us the villain and we begin to fuel it. It then feeds off of that because there isn't an integration there. It doesn't have a seat at our inner kingdom. doesn't have a seat at the table of our life. And so it begins to manifest more. We take that approach culturally with things that we dislike. And when we look at men and masculinity specifically, and we begin to say, oh, this is problematic, Mm. or there's a potential issue here, what has started to happen and be culturally acceptable is the demonization of that, the demonization of certain masculine qualities and attributes that maybe could be useful in some cases, but in other cases is definitely harmful. And the demonization of that thing without the understanding of it begins to create more of it. So like when you look at the whole toxic masculinity thing, I would really argue that that has done less help and more harm than anything else. Because what it's done is send a signal out to male culture and to men that says there's something wrong with you and we don't like it and you need to change it. And it's connected to these pillars of what you think it means to be a man and to be masculine. And these parts of you that you actually like and that most women are telling you that we want, right? We want direct, we want assertive men, we want men to sometimes take the lead in the relationship and plan and these types of things, right? And that's not everybody and I realize that and it's just, it's a general statement. So what that does within male culture is that resistance and that hatred builds more of it. And Mm. so you see characters like Andrew Tate come onto the scene and glom on and do this very simple thing, which is he'll say a truth and an inflammatory statement. And the inflammatory statement is almost always related to some kind of, of hatred or 
rejection mm. that men have felt and experienced. And then guys glom onto that, right? And then they move in that direction. So I'm not advocating for, you know, just accept male behavior and accept all these things that are harmful. That's not what I'm saying. What I am saying is that the approach that we've taken culturally is creating more of a divide than anything else. Yeah. 100% more of a divide. And, and we know that because we wouldn't behave like that with women. And if men were saying, oh, that's toxic and, you know, this part of femininity is so toxic and so unhealthy, no one would stand for that. Mm -hmm. Right. And, and <laughs> it's just, sure. it's not, it's just not how we would go about it. So, true. so I think we need to change the conversation specifically around masculinity and men and this whole toxic masculinity conversation because men want a function in a place. And one of the most damaging things that you can do to a man is say, you're not needed and you're not necessary. And I'll, I'll, like, that will just create more men who are checked out from relationships, from dating, from society, from work. And the most, the historically, the most dangerous thing cultures have ever done is exclude men and push them and drive them out to the fringes. And then you have large groups of men who are not invested in the culture. They're not invested in society. They're not invested in procreation or mating or dating or any of those things. And those men become dangerous. Yeah. And we're doing that in our culture. So true. Wow. Right. That so, so true. That's the first part. The second part, I've, I listened to this podcast with this woman named Ayala. I think I'm saying it right. Mm -hmm. It's A-E-L-L-A. And she was on this guy, Lex Friedman, who I really I love. Like Lex. His, yeah, yeah, he's great. Right. And so she she's had a very interesting past. She was a sex worker. She's a data analyst. Mm -hmm. And she ran these polls to see how many women wanted a more sexually dominant man mm -hmm. and how many men wanted to be sexually dominant. And in her polling, what she found was that more women want their male sexual partner. We're talking about heterosexual relationships. More women want their man to be sexually dominant than men want to be sexually dominant in the bedroom. So there's this emerging discrepancy that's starting to happen in dating because a lot of guys, because of the social commentary that's happened, we've sort of thrown the baby out with the bathwater, right? We've said like, men, you shouldn't be direct. You shouldn't be assertive. You shouldn't be any of these things. And so men are scared to approach. Men are scared to talk to women. They don't necessarily want to. They don't think it's worth it. You know, they're worried about allegations. They're worried about all sorts of things, right? They really like men are not engaging with women in the way that they normally would. Yes. And so I, I ran this poll in my Instagram profile, which is like 50-50, right? 50% men and 50% women. Same results. Women said unequivocally, I had 2,500 people go through the polling, mm -hmm. roughly 2,500 men and women. And women on average wanted men to be sexually dominant more than men wanted to be sexually dominant within the relationship. Mm -hmm. And so there's this emerging discrepancy that's starting to show up in dating where guys are hanging back. Wow. And what's happening, and you can see this in dating apps, which is super fascinating. Dating apps are a shit show. Shit show. <laughs> I'm man. like, so, you know, I'm so glad I'm like married and in a relationship. <laughs> no. I'm like, man, because I, I think I'd probably be, I mean, I don't know what that would be like right now, but to that, that's a different <laughs> conversation. Actually, my wife and I have talked about that a few times. <laughs> so what's emerging on these dating apps is that Women are having to make very quick decisions, mm -hmm. very sort of snap decisions based on a couple images and 
and some text. Yes. Right. And so when you take 50 men and 50 women on across these dating apps, what you have is that 45 of those 50 women go after five of the men. So on average, women are going after five to 8% of the men online. And the guys that are in the bottom 50% on Tinder, on Hinge, on Bumble, they nothing. nothing. Like, I mean, nothing. They can't get a message. They can't get a response. They can't get a match. They can't get anything. And so they yeah. start to check out. Yeah. And then they start to check into these conversations on YouTube and Reddit and whatnot that are saying, like the black pill and the red pill and all these mm -hmm. different colored pills that are saying women only want men over six feet tall and that make, you know, over $150,000. And so they start to get jaded because they're on these dating apps and they just can't get any connection whatsoever. And then they go online and they see the data that's emerging from these dating apps that's saying that women are only selecting this sort of top 5% of men and they're all clamoring after this sort of top 5%. And what's happening for those guys is those guys are realizing it. And so those guys are sleeping with a tremendous amount of women. Mm -hmm. They're not in relationships with any of them, or if they are, they're in open relationships with many women. Mm -hmm. And this is, I think, in part, creating the discrepancy that we're starting to see between, especially within the age range of 18 to 29, where you have 66% of those men single, but only 33% of women in that same age bracket are single. Hmm. So half as many women in that age bracket are single. Why is that? Well, one, women in that age range are dating older men, typically. Why? Yeah. Because older men generally are more mature. They've developed more. They've had time to gain some sense of economic status and stability, maybe social status. They've got a good network by that point. Maybe they've calmed through some phase of their life, sure. right? Maybe they've hit rock bottom and started to you know, get their life together or whatever it is. But the other piece is that a lot of women are either saying that they're in a relationship or in a relationship with a man who is with many women. And that's becoming much more prominent within our culture. And look, I'm not saying that's good or bad or wrong or any, I'm not making a statement about whether it's morally okay or not. I'm just saying this is what the data is showing is happening with dating apps and some of the commentary that's happening within men and women in our culture. Do you think there's a way to use dating apps that is healthy or what are your thoughts on because it I feel like it's completely changed the landscape 100%. because we're not I have a lot of incredible female friends who are I'm 35 so they're between 35 and probably 38 39 we're single and beautiful successful yada 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 and their commentary about the dating apps is just that I think it's very specific to different cities. I'll say that. <laughs> That's um, fair. I've a heard, lot of, a lot I've of them are in New LA. New York is like notoriously bad. New York's bad. LA is pretty bad. Uh -huh. It's a different guy though. Yes, that's fair. I have met the men in New York versus the men in like Los Angeles and Austin. Yes. And they're very different. They're, Austin, I, mean, so I was just in Austin. I was like, the men here are different. Yeah, they're very different. They're very yeah. different. I mean, I'm from, I'm from Northern Alberta okay. in Canada, which is like, take a dude from Texas, but he spends six months playing hockey in minus 20 or minus 30. Love it. Yeah. So that's where Personally. I'm from. And then, and then, you know, 12, 12 years on the West Coast in Vancouver. 
but they're very different. Anyway, you're, you're yeah, going to so, say, yeah, I'm just curious about your thoughts on dating apps. Cause I don't know if they're going anywhere. I think with our modern world and schedules and all the things, I'm just wondering if we'll ever go back to approaching someone in person. I think there's two parts to this that I'll say. It's a very interesting question because we're in a very interesting time where artificial intelligence is entering the chat room. Yes. And it's entering the equation in a really unknown way. And it's about to radically alter everything that we know in society, like everything. Nothing will be left untouched. So is there a way to have quote unquote conscious dating apps? Sure. Will people adopt them? I don't know. Mm -hmm. I mean, my wife and I have talked a little bit about trying to take a stab at creating something that yeah. would be meaningful, that takes certain principles into mind, certain therapeutic modalities into mind. I think the problem that we're going to start to see is AI is really going to screw things. How do you see it screwing with apps in particular? So like take Tinder as an example, right? Uh -huh. Tinder has 70% men and 30% women. Okay. So there are way more men on Tinder than there are women. And the female profiles that are on there, there's a whole bunch of them that are like kind of trying to hook guys into an OnlyFans account. Oh, wow. Yeah. I didn't know that. Tons. So there's a lot wow. of female profiles that are on Tinder, for example, where, you know, it's trying to get a guy over to an OnlyFans subscription or model or something like that, or over to a, a some sort of like cam orientation or whatever it is. Because that's a huge industry, right? Like in 2021, OnlyFans did $4.8 billion in one year in revenue, right? Where's that money coming from? Men, right? It's predominantly men that are spending the money on those platforms. And that's a bit of a different conversation. I'll come back to the dating app. Mm -hmm. So how is this going to affect dating apps? Well, if you have an AI chatbot, that is programmed to pretend that it's a woman engaging with a man, now you don't need, you don't need a human being involved to message that guy, to interact with him, nothing. And so AI is going to make it very, very easy for a man to be on a dating app and not know whether he's interacting with a woman or not. And these chatbots are going to be so good that he's going to feel like he's interacting with a human being on the other side of it to the point that he'll sign up to an OnlyFans subscription and that OnlyFans subscription will just be another chatbot. And the images that he's consuming are completely fabricated, right? Because, I mean, we've all seen the AI fabrication imagery. Some of the video eventually, like we're not very far away from the video being completely AI rendered. So... These dating apps are on the verge of being infiltrated by AI chatbots that are essentially phishing schemes, right? They're essentially trying to get people into some form of pornographic content or subscription model or whatever it is. So I think that's one part of it. And I think the other part of it is there is an opportunity for us to use AI, I think, to understand human psychology and to understand specifically human attachment because at the base of every relationship is just our ability to attach to another human being 
And so if you can take basic attachment and use something like artificial intelligence to create a platform that can get to know you and can get to know me and can understand how we attach, what our challenges are, a little bit of what our shadow is, how we maybe sabotage that relationship, then you should theoretically be able to create an algorithm that can matchmake in a much more efficient way. That becomes a little problematic in terms of you're taking the natural human element of just sure. like meeting somebody in the grocery store or at the yoga place or at the gym or wherever it is on the street, the coffee shop, where just the spark happens, right? The sort of natural human spark. I don't know what it is about this person, but I feel this connection, mm -hmm. right? So it kind of takes that part out of the equation. And there's a lot of ifs around that. There's a lot of precarious situations that could come out of AI in terms of how we're creating those matches. But I think that there is a possibility for it to go down that route. Mm -hmm. And I think that there's some companies working on that. Whether or not that'll actually pan out is a yeah. very, very different conversation. But I really, all of the men that I work with, the first thing I tell them is to get off the dating apps. This is the first thing I say. Like, they're just not effective unless you want to practice digital communication. Yes. Flirting via text right? Or making that first connection. So if you want to use it for that function and that purpose, go for it. If you're just fishing to maybe have some fun, like go for it. And for the numbers. Yeah. And for the numbers, sure. But if you're really wanting genuine connection and you really want to understand how to develop robust social skills, which I'll just say, I think are going to become so important in the very near future. We are about to enter into a space, I think, where artificial intelligence like a split. is, yeah, is going to split. There's going to be, like I heard somebody say, I don't remember who this was, but it's like, it's not humans versus AI, it's humans versus humans who are using AI, right? So it's a, an appendage for us. Sure. But I think for many people, what's going to become more and more important are, can you be grounded and regulated? in any space because we're about to enter into the possibility of real extreme manipulation via artificial intelligence. So can you stay grounded and regulated when everyone around you is losing a goddamn mind? Yep. And do you have healthy, good social skills? Because those are going to become so important in a space where we've just had a whole generation just grow up online they're overly reliant on their technological capacities and they've under-indexed dramatically yeah. their social capacity. And with AI, it's going to free up a lot of time, a lot of skills. And so what's going to become very important is, do you know how to talk about to other human beings how you're using AI, right? How you're using this appendage. So yeah, I know that was a much broader answer no, to your I'm, question. I'm glad but you went there. I never thought about I know that it's impending, just that AI is going to be everywhere, but I never thought about the dating app aspect. I'm not obviously on them anymore, but I used to be. And yeah, that's a really, especially for men. I We'd don't be know having a this... different conversation if you're on dating apps right now. And... Oh, 100%. <laughs> be like, okay, tell me more. Because <laughs> I remember when I was on them, I actually was having 
towards the end, like a nice experience. I was like kind of trusting. I wasn't necessarily going just for the hot, the tall, the whatever. I was opening my aperture to like kind of an intuitive feeling, Mm. you know, and it didn't always come in the package that I thought. And I was actually having like a great experience, meeting great people, whatever. But thinking about men on the app in particular, because I don't know if the bot thing is happening to women as much with like the OnlyFans thing. Yeah. I would say no. Probably not. Because I would think that's like kind of a weird, it's a double standard, but like a predatory thing. Can I say one thing on that though? Yes, absolutely. There are going to be men that will start to happen to women. Catfished. Catfished emotionally. Wow. So there was a, I haven't seen South Park in a long time. Wow, same. It still exists, apparently. And a buddy of mine sent me an episode that I actually took the time to watch recently because one of the characters is in a relationship and he's having a hard time. I think it was Stan or whoever, I don't remember who it was, is having a hard time with his girlfriend. And one of the guys says to use ChatGPT, right, which is AI. And so he basically has ChatGPT (laughs) respond Uh to all of his girlfriend's text messages. Wow. (laughs) And... She falls madly in love with him again. And she's just like, this is, I never thought that our relationship could be so good and like all this stuff. And, you know, behind the scenes, he's like using JetGPT, right? So what is going to start to happen is guys being savvy are going to start to use chatbots to engage with women on dating apps. And so women will be engaging with some form of a chatbot that's getting to know her, what she likes, what she doesn't like what she's interested in, what she wants to do, all this kind of stuff, she'll be engaging with a chatbot and then it'll essentially set up a date with that guy and then he'll just have some of the information of like what she likes, what she enjoys, wow. all that type of stuff. So that's a possibility as well. So I think it it's really interesting to see what might come about. It It could make dating a little easier. It could make dating a hell of a lot more worse. Like, yeah. I don't honestly know. But I think the best thing we can do is use dating apps discerningly Mm -hmm. and Mm -hmm. to reinvest in social capital, to go out with your friends, to get back, to talk to people in the grocery store and wherever you go and spend time and to go to where you think the people that you want to date are or where you think they are and to engage with people in those spaces. Yeah. Yeah. Reinvest in social capital. I completely agree. Two last questions before we close, just on this dating theme, speaking for a lot of women in our community and also some of my friends, women who are spending more time and energy building their career Mm -hmm. and it's taking them, you know, well into their thirties and they're not necessarily prioritizing settling down yet, Mm -hmm. neither good nor bad. It's just kind of what's happening. And when they are dating or ready to settle down, a lot of them feel like there's a certain energy that they're putting out that is not necessarily metabolized well by men who are available to date because Mm. there's a desperation and one's on a ticking clock and one is not. I guess, what have you heard from men on that? I'm just curious. (laughs) You're really putting me in a position know, here, aren't you? But I mean, <laughs> but I, I would love insight because I can really understand both. I know we're talking about a very specific kind of coupling and scenario, but I'm like, I can understand, yeah. you know, kind of the pressure 
and like feeling that des- I never I never like feeling someone else's desperation. I'm like allergic to it. So I can understand. It's <laughs> a good way of putting it. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I have an allergy to desperation. Yeah. Yeah. I think I can speak for myself. I can speak for the men that I've worked with. I can't speak for all men in general, but I think for a lot of guys, we can feel that oftentimes of like, okay, you're done with maybe your party phase, you're done with setting up your career, you're done with like these boxes that you wanted to check off. And now there's this intensity of like, need to get married, need to have a kid. Yeah. And I think for some guys that can feel like, okay, am I just another box to check off? Mm-hmm. And I think the marriage is becoming a very interesting conversation in our culture where people are waiting longer and longer, mm-hmm. less people are getting married than ever before. For men specifically, a lot of us know the data that 70 to 80%, depending on the state, 70 to 80% of divorces are initiated by women. So a lot of guys know that there's kind of like this, it's a double-edged sword. It might be something that a man wants, but there can be this hesitation of like, okay, so why now, right? Why me? How do I know that I'm not just going to be here for the five to 10 years that you want to have a kid and buy the house and do the thing. And then you'll be through that phase and want to do something else or go back to your single life. And so I think for a lot of guys, there's a big apprehension around marriage and that can be intensified when a woman is really fierce with that part, right? Of like, okay, I'm ready. Yes. (laughs) It's like, I'm ready. So we got to do this now. Yes. And it's a fine line. It's a fine balance to walk. I was reading, I think it was Pew Research had put out a study recently that they were looking at how women were having babies later and later and later, getting married later and later and later. And they found that by 2040, the projections show that 40% of women between 25 and 45 will be childless and single. So it's a big amount that's starting to manifest within our culture. Again, right, wrong, and different. It's not a moral comment. It's just what the data is starting to show. I have a lot of empathy for both men and women in our culture who are trying to find their way into a relationship. I remember my wife, she's built this amazing career, built this incredible practice. She's a marriage and family therapist, a couple mm-hmm. th- couples therapist. We met, she was just starting to come into like her peak of her career. Wow. And same with me. It was like my company was exploding. And I remember after we got engaged, she said, I wasn't sure if this would happen for me. And she said, I really wanted kids. I really wanted to get married, but I really wasn't sure if this would happen for me. And I thought, well, that's, that's a little like that. That makes me sad to know that there's many women out there that, that do want kids and that do want a family and that do want to get married and want to do some of these things. And are struggling to find that balance because I think for me as a man, like our, I always say that men and women experience time differently. I have this much longer horizon that I experience life in where, and what I mean by that is women will come into, I was going to say childbearing years, but like childbearing years, and then they'll exit that at a certain time that they can't have kids any longer or becomes more and more challenging. Mm -hmm. And I think for men, we experience time much differently in the sense that there isn't as much of an urgency. And a lot of men don't feel the urgency to have a kid 
And what a lot of guys are waiting for is, do I have the stability? Am I emotionally mature enough? Do I have the time? How is this going to alter my life? And so I think that needs to enter into part of the conversation that men and women are having when they're getting into a relationship and trying to decide whether or not they're going to have kids or want to have kids, especially if you're a woman who really does want kids. It's like, you know, get curious about where that guy's at and start to ask him questions like, you know, if you did want kids, where do you think you'd have to be in life in order to be ready for that? Sure. You know, is there a certain type of financial stability or emotional stability? Is there a certain place that you want to be living? Like get a better picture because he might have that stored away. And I think the last thing that I'll say is, and this is kind of a big one that I think our culture is really not talking about. In 1970, 11% of households had women as the primary breadwinner. And in 2020, it was 42%. So over a few short decades, we've radically changed the cultural landscape where men were predominantly and breadwinners, a very antiquated word, but it's the word that the researchers use. But men were the primary earner within the household. And now a lot of women are out earning the men that they're dating. And it's creating this tension where a lot of men are like, okay, well, are you even going to want to have a kid with me if you out earn me? Sure. If you make two or three times much as me, like, what do I do then? Because I've been told and sold into this notion that I have to be the provider. And if it's not financial providing, then what am I doing? What's my role? And so I think there's this unspoken part of the social equation or the relational equation when it comes to having kids specifically, that because a lot of women, especially in you know metropolis cities, right? LA, Austin, New York, mm -hmm. Miami, are out earning a lot of the men that they're dating it becomes problematic and people just aren't having this conversation about like, okay, well, how would we want to raise our kids, right? If you earn two or three times as much as me, am I okay with that? Are you okay with that? And if we're both okay with it, then how do we want to structure our life? Right. And I think that that is causing a lot of duress for people who are just not having those conversations. So I think that's the last part of it. And I mean, those are the, like the unsexy conversations. Super you know? unsexy, but so, necessary. Yeah. But necessary. Yeah. And I think a lot of people hesitate because they're like, well, we're, we're just dating. You know, we're not even engaged yet. Yeah. And it's like, you know, if you sense that that is the direction that you're going though, and even if it is kind of early, I think we fear so much how the other person, what assumptions they'll make. Yeah or what they'll project onto those types of questions. And I think it comes with maturity. Like I think in my 30s, I was like much more comfortable asking those types of questions than I was in my 20s. Mm. I was more so morphing to like be the one that they would choose me personally. And I felt a bit more, a little bit more in control in my early 30s. <laughs> I wouldn't say all the way. But yeah, this is a really interesting conversation to be having and a staggering stat around women who are wanting to have children, wanting to settle down, but, mm -hmm. but not. Yeah. We definitely traversed some territory that I wasn't expecting. I know. I'm so glad. <laughs> I love when guests say that. <laughs> this has been amazing. I want to close the book and we were talking about it briefly before we started and just feeling so deeply the sense that this book is not one that will have just like a hot flash mm. in the pan. I don't even know if that's the right 
phrase anyway, <laughs> will be around for a long time. And hopefully the book that therapists and psychologists recommend to men entering this work. And I agree. I mean, I think, and I know it will be. What was it like putting pen to paper in this way, theoretically, where your work is now, yeah, a legacy piece hmm. and something that can reach so many people? And the additional thought to that question is just, we're writing a book now, and you kind of go through the work as you're writing it, like you're kind of doing that in initiatory walk through yourself. Mm -hmm. So what was that like? Yeah, I mean, it was a blast. It was very hard. It took a while. At first, a lot of publishing houses said that men don't buy books. Oh, wow. And so they were like, we love you. We love the platform. But guys don't buy self-help books. And I was like, maybe not publishing things that they care about which was really fascinating to hear. And so as you, as you get into yours, just like mm -hmm. stay the mm -hmm. course. <laughs> wow. But I really wanted to write something that was not just something that like the reader would read mm -hmm. and be like, oh, there's some cool ideas in there. I wanted it to be training. I wanted it to be tactical. I wanted it to be something where the reader had to get into their own inner workings as they went through the book. And so every, every chapter has questions to uncover based on the chapter. And then some of the chapters have integration exercises. And it's really, it's based on shadow work. It's based on a lot of things that we sort of touched on throughout the show. And it's really about helping a man come into his own sense of internal leadership and to move through the blocks and the barriers and the obstacles and for women to understand the men that they're with. I think it. I really wanted it to be a book for men, but to be a book about men that could help women really understand their fathers, their brothers, their boyfriends, their husbands, their sons. Mm -hmm. So it's been really interesting to see how men and women are using the book differently. It's called men's work, right? So it's like, yeah. <laughs> I didn't expect so many women to engage with it, but it's been phenomenal to see how it's being received and how many women are like, oh, I, like, I get my ex-husband now or I get my husband. Leave it to like, women to just, yeah. they're like, we're the one that buys books and we're going to buy this yeah. one. <laughs> and I think I get a lot of questions of like, how do I help my partner? Sure. And what I almost always say is buy him the book without the expectation that he has to read it. Yeah. Just give it to him and say, heard this guy on a podcast, thought you might enjoy it. No pressure. Yeah. And let it be his choice. Sure. And maybe... Or just read the introduction. Read the first couple of pages. If you don't like it, give it away. Yeah. And because he might not be ready for it. It might sit on a shelf for six months until he picks it up. So that choice point is so important. So damn important. Ooh. Yeah. <laughs> we really try to change them. We really try to make their life better. <laughs> and it's it never works. It never works. But it's from a good place. It's of from course. love. I get it. But they have to choose. Yeah. yeah. So powerful. Thank yeah. you. Thank you. Thank you. This Thanks for having me. Awesome. Awesome. We'll link everything in the show notes, courses, the retreats, the book, everything, and the podcast. The podcast is phenomenal, by thank the way. You. Thank you. Really phenomenal. Thank you so much, Connor. What a beautiful conversation. Really appreciate you. Again, that is Connor from Mantox. And the book is Men's Work. And thank you to our sponsors for this episode bringing you brands that we have vetted for you we have used and approve of and love sharing with you you can find all discount information in our show notes both the codes and links 
as well as on almost30.com. Thank you for listening to Almost 30, for subscribing, just being an incredible part of our community. If you're curious about just being more in the community and experiencing Krista and I more intimately and one another more intimately, you can check out our membership at almost30.com slash membership. We love you guys. We'll see you soon. See ya.